Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, our weekly get-together to talk about the world of sports and what is happening, as always, on a Thursday night. Tonight, July 16, 2015, want to send out happy birthday wishes to my father. I'm not going to tell you how old he is, but his birthday will be tomorrow. So, happy birthday, Dad. There's a lot going on. Of course, the All-Star Game was this past Tuesday night, and the Home Run Derby was on Monday night. We're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking with our guest this evening, Jesse Howells, out of Cleveland, Ohio, who participated in the World Series of Poker this past week in Las Vegas. He finished 198th in the tournament. That is in the upper 3%. We're going to be talking with Jesse coming up here in just a little bit on tonight's show. A lot more going on. The NFL and the NBA, death, destruction, mayhem, and Ronda Rousey. We're going to do all that on tonight's show. But first... Well, on a story first broken on UltimateSportsTalk.com yesterday, the Cincinnati Reds are ready to make wholesale changes. And according to sources, the Reds are poised to make a major announcement within the next 48 hours regarding their organization. Those same sources are pointing to the announcement being the release of general manager Walt Jockety. Jockety was hired as a special advisor to the Reds in January of 2008, and he was elevated to the GM post after Wayne Krivsky was fired in April of the same year. Jockety, of course, he's been under fire, not only by the media, but also by Mark Donahue and I on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, for his inability to make moves that would have put the Reds over the top and into championship contention. He also has been criticized for the contracts he negotiated with Joey Votto, Homer Bailey, and Brandon Phillips, just to name three, and it's hamstrung the organization in regards to salary. No word on who would replace Jockety as GM, although Kevin Towers, the former general manager in Arizona, is the assistant GM in Cincinnati right now. And the trade deadline, this couldn't come at a worse time, is just two weeks away on July 31st. And rumors persist that the team right now is looking to unload Johnny Cueto, Brandon Phillips, and Jay Bruce. Cueto, rumored to be going to Houston. Bruce, possibly even going to Houston, and Phillips, maybe even going to the New York Yankees. Well, the All-Star Game was Tuesday night, the 86th edition, and Los Angeles Angels outfielder Mike Trout validated his standing as the best player in baseball, becoming the first player to win the Most Valuable Player Award in the All-Star Game two years in a row. Trout used his power and speed to help the American League beat the National League 6-3 at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. The Angels center fielder is the reigning American League Most Valuable Player. He's won the Rookie of the Year Award and twice been runner-up for the MVP. And he all but owns the All-Star Game. He's got a 500 career average, 5 for 10 in the game, and a career cycle, all before his 24th birthday. Trout led off the game with a homer to right off Zach Greinke of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he scored the go-ahead run off another Dodger, Clayton Kershaw, in the fifth. The Royals' Alcides Escobar singled and Lorenzo Cain doubled in that rally. And their teammate Wade Davis pitched a scoreless eighth inning for their manager, Ned Yost. Trout talked with Fox Sports' Aaron Andrews about his approach to facing the Dodgers' Zach Greinke to lead off the game. Just trying to get a pitch I can hit. Uh, I got the two strikes, just trying to barrel it, put a good swing on it, and it went over the fence. You know, it's, uh, this experience has been awesome. Um, fans been great, everything, you know, so I'm out of blast. You know, we were just talking to, I was just talking to the commissioner and saying, this is your face, this is the face of Major League Baseball. I had guys like Todd Frazier in the dugout say, Mike Trout is the best player in Major League Baseball. Pitchers are saying they want to face you. At 23 years old, how do you put that into perspective? Uh, it means a lot, you know, I, I try to respect the game as much as I can, play the game the right way, and just have fun. Um, Never disrespect it and just go out there and give it my all every day. Uh, there is a stat that was uh, going around on Twitter. We just put it up on our broadcast. Since you've led off in the All-Star game, you've hit for a cycle. Did you know this? No, I didn't know that. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. 
and it was the first all-star home run to lead off the game since 1977. That's when Cincinnati's Joe Morgan did it at Yankee Stadium. Almost as rare was a run of any kind off Granke, and he'll start the second half with a streak of 35 and two-thirds scoreless innings. Then, Granke retired just fine. He fanned four and two innings and became the first pitcher with four Ks in an all-star game since Pedro Martinez had five in 1999. But the home run sent Trout on his way to another standout night. After striking out in the third, Trout came up again in the fifth off Clayton Kershaw, and after Escobar's single, Trout grounded to second, but beat the relay flow to first base after Escobar was forced at second. The next batter flied out, but Trout's hustle kept the inning alive for what came next, a walk by Albert Pujols and a run-scoring hit by Prince Fielder and then by Kane. Trout became the fifth player to win multiple All-Star MVP awards, joining Steve Garvey and three Hall of Famers, Willie Mays, Gary Carter, and Cal Ripken Jr. And with the win, now the American League will have home field advantage in the World Series this year. A three-time batting champion provided fans with one of the most iconic moments in baseball history when he collected hit number 4192 right here in his hometown from Western Hills High School in Cincinnati. Please welcome Pete Rose. came in from the third base dugout to the mound, and he followed Johnny Bench, Barry Larkin, and Joe Morgan. They love their baseball in Cincinnati, and they love their ballplayers, and they cheered manly until Rose walked before them, and then they cheered some more. He hugged Johnny Bench, and in my opinion, he took Johnny Bench off the hook with the fans in Cincinnati for some of the comments that Bench made on ESPN earlier in the week about Rose's being reinstated and entering the Hall of Fame. But it was really Fox that cut the ovation short. Commissioner Rob Manfred said on Tuesday that he has not scheduled a meeting yet with Rose to discuss reinstatement. Rose did, though, get to meet Manfred for the first time as he waited to go on the field, saying he had never talked about a guy so much that he's never met. And even though he's never played in Great American Ballpark, Rose is all over that stadium. There were Rose jerseys dotting the stands, and the team's Hall of Fame includes Rose. And along with all of that, a Rose Garden sits just outside Great American Ballpark, and it marks the spot where Rose's record-breaking hit landed at Old Riverfront Stadium. And on top of all that, Great American Ballpark sits on Pete Rose Way. And then after all that came the four greatest living players. And, of course, it caused quite a controversy, as you would expect. Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays all gathered in front of the pitcher's mound and acknowledged the crowd. The foursome was voted on by fans and immediately raised questions as to why one player was on and another player was left off. And the first question was, how could Pete Rose and Barry Bonds be kept off this list? Firstly, Rose wasn't even placed on the ballot. He wasn't eligible simply because of his banishment. Now, that taints the procedure already. How can the all-time hit king not even be eligible for this list, and who made that decision? Well, Rose should have taken the place of Johnny Bench as far as I'm concerned, and I'm the biggest Johnny Bench fan there ever was, but still, Pete Rose was a better ball player and meant more to the Reds than Johnny Bench did. Now, in defense of Bonds, his career war wins over replacement ranks behind only Babe Ruth, Cy Young, and Walter Johnson on the all-time leaderboard. He's the all-time Major League leader in home runs, MVP awards, and other numbers too big to count. Like Rose, some of Bond's off-field decisions are questionable, but his on-field accomplishments remain spectacular, and he should have replaced Mays or Aaron, probably Aaron. Finally, there's Koufax. Sandy looked great for a guy in his 70s, and when he threw out the first pitch of the game, he threw a strike to bench. Now, should it have been Koufax or Bob Gibson, the Cardinal righty? Koufax, great career, but his arthritis ended that career prematurely at age 30. 
During that time, though, he was an all-star for six seasons. He was the National League's MVP in 1963. He won three Cy Young Awards in 63, 65, and 66 by unanimous votes, making him the first three-time Cy Young Award winner in baseball history. And he was the only one to win three times when the award was only given to one instead of one for each league. And Gibson, well, he was just amazing over a longer period of time. He played 17 seasons, posted 251 wins, 3,117 strikeouts, and had on his career an ERA of 2.91. A nine-time All-Star and a two-time World Series champion, Gibson won two Cy Young Awards and the 1968 National League Most Valuable Player Award. So neither pitcher you could have made the correct choice. In my mind, I probably would have gone with Koufax, but you could have not argued with the fact that Bob Gibson could be there instead. And then the hometown boy made good. Cincinnati's Todd Frazier became the first player from the hometown team to win the home run derby on Monday night since Ryan Sandberg did it in 1990, and the league unleashed a new format that made the event shorter. CBS Sports Major League Baseball insider John Heyman discusses the success of Monday night's home run derby. Yeah, I think they were nervous. Uh, it looked like a bad forecast. Uh, it was a torrential downpour in the middle of the afternoon. The rain came later, uh, about 12 o'clock. But uh, it looked like uh, uh, they got pretty lucky with the way things turned out. The weather cooperated. Uh, they changed the format slightly and made it four minutes instead of five to get make sure they get it in. And uh, I think the time element worked rather than the outs uh, for the home run hitters. And uh, it was much better, much more exciting. And, they, uh, of course, it was great being here to see Todd Frazier, who's a terrific individual, uh, as well as a very good player, obviously, uh, winning that thing. It was just a very exciting moment for the city of Cincinnati, which is a great baseball town and right now suffering a bit with their uh, kind of a weak season they're having. Uh, and unfortunately, they lost their catcher, they lost their – uh, shortstop for the year, uh, Homer Bailey uh, for the year. They needed some good news, and that was it. Todd Frazier did it for them. So Rob Manfred has walked into the commissioner's office and seemed to be kind of open about changing things. Pace of play has changed this this year, and the format of the home run derby changed. Are we to expect that this will continue through the early years of his commissionership, or is there just a few big things he wanted to change early? Uh, yeah, I think uh, he had a few thoughts in mind. Uh, I think he certainly, in, in, in the bigger picture, uh, liked to get uh, uh, more young people involved in the game and excited about the game. Uh, his youth initiative yesterday he announced. Um, I, I think he'd certainly uh, be happy if there are more uh, minorities uh, playing baseball rather than basketball or football. And there were a lot of uh, minorities, and that wasn't Rob's doing, but uh, they were happy with that drafted. Uh, very high this year, uh, the first and second round. Uh, but I, I think that he has some big picture thoughts that he'd like to see uh, done. I'm not sure that these little specific uh, tweaks here and there are really part of his big plan, but uh, I think he'd like to make the game a little bit faster paced and uh, more exciting uh, for the young fans. I do think that is part of the big picture, and that's something that he, he would like to do. Well, another thing baseball has been concerned about is the ratings with that home run derby, and the telecast delivered a 4.9 overnight rating, according to Nielsen. That was up 26% from a 3.9 for the 2014 event. And Manfred says baseball is in such good shape financially that anything is possible, and that includes expansion. Currently, there are 30 teams. And that means the competitive balance in the pennant races, strong attendance, thriving local television ratings, and perhaps most significant, the rising use of the at-bat app has baseball looking good. So will they expand? Well, they're looking into it. Arizona and Tampa Bay joined the league for the 1998 season. That was the last time baseball expanded. But Manfred said the league was considering adding teams. Nothing is said to be imminent, though, and Manfred did not cite any cities on the list, although there is some growing optimism that Montreal may get another team. Now, Manfred also spoke about shortening the regular season schedule, but that's virtually impossible. Now, I've got a plan for it where they would play day-night doubleheaders on Saturday or Sunday, and that could cut anywhere from 12 to 14 days off the schedule, but still... Manfred said the gates are too valuable and TV contracts with game guarantees 
would be affected. Manfred also said that the new pace of play rules have helped shave nine minutes off the average time of a major league game, and if that holds up, it will be the biggest drop from one season in the last 50 years. Well, since we are on the All-Star break and everybody is off tonight, let's take a look at the standings as we head into the second half of the Major League Baseball season. Let's start out in the American League Central Division, where the Kansas City Royals are leading it by four and a half games with a record of 52-34. and 34. That's the best record in the American League. And they lead the Minnesota Twins with a record of 49-40. and 40. Then comes Detroit. They're nine games out. Even Steven at 44-44. and 44. Cleveland is now 42-46. and 46. They're 11 games out, and they're virtually tied for last place in the Central with the Chicago White Sox at 41-45. and 45. In the American League East, it's the New York Yankees on top. They're three and a half games up with a record of 48-40. and 40. Then comes Tampa Bay. 46 and 45 in second. Baltimore is in third, four games out with a record of 44 and 44. Toronto is 45 and 46, but they're four and a half games out in fourth place. And Boston is in last place, six and a half games out with a record of 42 and 47. In the American League West, the LA Angels have finally overtaken the Houston Astros for first place in the West. The Angels are 48-40, and 40, and they lead by a half a game over the Astros at 49-42. and 42. But keep in mind, the Astros are hot on the tail of Johnny Cueto for the Cincinnati Reds. Texas, 42-46. and 46. They're six games out in third place. Seattle, 41-48. and 48. They're seven and a half games out. And then in last place in the AL West with a record of 41-50, and 50, the Oakland A's, and they are eight and a half games out. Over in the National League, the team with the best record in baseball, the St. Louis Cardinals. They are 56-33. and 33. They're two and a half games in front of the team with the second best record in baseball. The Pittsburgh Pirates at 53-35. and 35. And the Pirates have won eight of their last ten and three in a row heading out of the All-Star break. The Chicago Cubs are in third place, eight games back. They're 47-40. and 40. Then come the Cincinnati Reds at 39-47, and 47, 15 and a half games out. And Milwaukee rounds out the Central with a record of 38-52. and 52. They are 18 and a half games out. Over in the National League East, Washington leads it by two straight, two games. They are 48 and 39, and the New York Mets are in second, two games out, 47 and 42. They've won four in a row. Atlanta's lost five in a row, and they've fallen seven games off the pace at 42 and 47. Then comes Miami, 11 games out, 38 and 51. And they're on top of the Philadelphia Phillies, who are in last place in the East, 21 games out with the worst record in baseball, 29 and 62. Finally out in the National League West, it's the LA Dodgers with the third best record in the National League with a record of 51 wins against 39 losses. They're four and a half games on top of the San Francisco Giants who have won three in a row. They're 46 and 43. Then comes Arizona, seven and a half games out, 42 and 45. San Diego's won two straight. They're 41 and 49, 10 games out. And then Colorado, who's won four in a row, they're in the basement at 39 and 49. So with that being said, let's take a look at the wild card standings heading into the second half of the season. First of all, in the National League, Pittsburgh and the Chicago Cubs are in the driver's seat right now in the wild card. But then come the New York Mets, just a game out. San Francisco, two out. Arizona, five out. Atlanta, six out. And San Diego and Cincinnati each are seven and a half games out. In the American League, Minnesota and Houston are the wild card teams right now. Then come Tampa Bay, three games behind Houston. Then Baltimore, three and a half out along with Detroit. They're each 44 and 44. Toronto's four games out, and the Cleveland Indians are tied with Texas and the White Sox. All three of those teams are five and a half games out. Now, as we peer into the weekend, there are some games that are going on around Major League Baseball this weekend that are very, very important as far as the standings are concerned. First of all, in an interleague contest this weekend going on in Cincinnati, the Cleveland Indians will be taking on the Cincinnati Reds, and you can hear all about that series coming up on Monday night on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show with Mark Donahue and I, and that will be on at 9 o'clock here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. The Los Angeles Dodgers, first place in the West, taking on the first-place team in the East, the Washington Nationals in a weekend series this weekend. And a couple of other series that are going on 
It will be the Rangers taking on the Astros. The Mets are in St. Louis playing the Cardinals. And finally, rounding things out, it will be the Giants in Arizona taking on the D-backs as the Major League Baseball season continues after this week's All-Star break. And that's going to do it for our look at Major League Baseball here tonight. Well, the preliminary rounds of the World Series of Poker have been going on for weeks in Las Vegas at the Rio All-Suite Hotel and Casino. Over 6,400 started the competition, and it's now down to nine. But one of the contestants is Jesse Howells. Jesse's from Cleveland, plays regularly in tournaments and at the Horseshoe Casino in Cleveland, and he participated for the first time in the World Series of Poker this week and finished in the money in the 198th spot, winning $40,000. Jesse Howells is my guest on tonight's show. Jesse, I started out by asking him the first question. Finishing 198th out of over 6,400, you had to be happy with how you did. Absolutely. No, it was uh, definitely a bittersweet finish. Um, you know, to be in the top 3% of, you know, over 6,000 entrants, 6,420 to be exact, uh, you're talking about 6,000 of the best players in the world. Um you know, all coming together for the most prestigious event, uh, the, which is the World Series of Poker uh, main event, and it's a it's a ten thousand dollar buy in. Um, it's prestigious in the sense that you can only buy into it once. Uh, you're not able to re-enter like a lot of the other high roller events with, um, uh, you know, that the the pros tend to do. Like if there's even a hundred k buy in, these guys might fire five times at it and be. 500,000 into a tournament that, you know, might only pay 3 million or something like that. Um, you know, the, the pros don't have the advantage of buying in multiple times. So, uh it definitely carries uh that allure. It's uh it's whatever every every player hopes to attain in their uh, in their career and you know, I played with some some great pros. I mean, and their their track record is, you know, a good track record is cashing three or four times out of 12 and uh this is my first time. So, yeah, to run deep, to go 198th out of 6,420 people and have a taste of first prize of $7.6 million, I mean, it was uh, it was amazing. It was a great experience. Uh, the cash was still, you know, at my place it was 40000 on the 10000 buy-in. So uh, myself, the investors um, that, that I had, my, my father-in-law included, Dave Williams, uh, you know, we all made uh, 30000 profit that we all got to chop up at the end of the day. So, it was definitely uh, uh, the money's always nice, but uh, it's never good enough unless it's first, right? Jesse, I know this has always been a goal of yours. Was it what you expected? Uh, you know, I it it, it was to an extent. Uh, like you know, cards are cards. I mean, if you don't know the game by the time you enter the tournament, it's like studying the night before a test. You're not gonna. There's nothing groundbreaking that's going to happen between the night before and the morning of the event. Um, what really uh, surprised me was the level of endurance necessary to uh, make it to the end. I mean, the last two hours of every night, you're just delirious. Like, I, I don't care how rested you are. I mean, even though it's it's not even physically possible to get more than six hours of sleep in between nights on the seven-day tournament. Um, but, uh, but goodness, like, I don't care how much you work out, how much oxygen you you, you get hooked up to, uh, how well you eat, how much water you drink, whether or not you snack throughout. I mean, your your mind is only capable of making so many decisions every day. And after you get into that, like, 10th, 11th hour of just constant decision-making, um, you're you're faded. You you are dr- mentally drained. You're you're hallucinate. You're on the brink of hallucination. It's it's really um, it's it's transcendental. It's 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 hard to explain. There, it, it it takes every ounce of your being to just make it through the end of each day, and that's that's all your goal really is is to make it to the end of the day, regroup tomorrow. And I did that over and over and over, and made it to day five of of seven days total until they get down to the final nine, and that was uh, it was exhausting, <laughs> but. But, uh, yeah, the, the endurance factor, that was definitely what caught me off guard the most. The cards part, that's, uh, that's pretty, um, that kind of comes with the territory. But, uh, the physical endurance, that was by far, uh, the biggest adjustment. How many hours do you actually sit there and, and play, Jesse, and do they break it up anyway? Yeah, each day, uh, you play for 10 hours of actual playtime. So that's, uh, five two-hour levels per day. 
Now, if you play at your local casino, um, you know, your levels might vary from 20 minutes to 30 minutes. If you're lucky, you might get 40-minute levels. Now, you know, granted, like, the longer the levels, the more skill prevails and the less luck is a factor. Um, but, uh, you know, the goal of the casino is to get the event over in one night. So, or you know, and then if you have a bigger buy-in, say a $1,500 local buy-in or a $1,000 buy-in or even sometimes with $500 buy-ins, They'll run the, the event to maybe three days total, um, and uh, and and this one, this one the levels are, you know, four or five times longer than like your standard daily tournament, um, with more levels in between, and it's just it's really drug out so that the cream rises to the top in a in a traditional sense, like of uh, longer the duration, the more. Technically, the more um, advantage there is towards the skill player. So, and you saw it. You saw breaking points in people. People got fatigued. I mean, you know, it became psychological warfare in the sense of like who can hang on the longest. Have you ever seen one of those competitions where, uh, you know, you got to put your hand on the car, and the and the person who had, the last person with their hand on the car gets the car. I mean, it's 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 very similar to that. It's 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 more physical. Uh, than it is uh, mental in some respects. You know, you have to you have to physically be able to sit in that seat for ten hours, and, and you start factoring in your breaks, and you have five twenty-minute breaks that add up to uh, hour forty minutes plus a ninety-minute dinner break. I mean, you're talking about over three hours in breaks and ten hours of play. I mean, I'm at the Rio for fourteen hours, fifteen hours a day. It's uh, trying to eat in between there. I mean, it 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 feels like prison about <laughs> you get told when to eat, when to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Jesse Howell is our guest on tonight's show. Jesse, talk about the, the pressure. Was it what you expected? What was the pressure like as you got further into the tournament? In tournament poker, the pressure really builds around the bubble. And uh, when you're on the brink of the next person going out and getting $0, and then if you stay in, you, you are guaranteed at least 15000 uh, we hit that on um, on day three, actually, the bubble burst. And the bubble in these tournaments typically bursts on day four. Uh, most tournaments, they pay out the top 10% of the prize pool. So in this case, it should have been, you know, 642 get paid. Uh, but they wanted to appeal more to the recreational players, so they spread the prize pool a bit, and they drug out another, you know, 350 spots to get paid. So actually, the top 1,000 got paid in this, uh, in this situation. Um, so... To hit the top thousand, we hit that middle of day three, which is the first time in WSOP history that they paid out that many spots. Uh, that being said, uh, you know there was a lot, a lot of pressure around these folks just trying to cash. I mean, you have people that satellite it in for a hundred bucks, and off their hundred dollar investment, they can turn it into fifteen thousand. Now, me, I knew I was going to be playing it, so I just bought in for the for ten k cold, and you know, so the min cash to me or my people, it wasn't really going to move the needle a whole lot. I mean, to make five grand after sitting there for three, four days, I mean, it's, you know, it's five grand is nice, but when you chop it up with all the people that have your back, it, it scraps. So that being said, for a lot of these guys, it was a chance to turn a few hundred bucks into 15000 and a lot of them were on edge. They weren't playing a lot of hands. You had a lot of players stalling. Um, but, you know, once that broke, you know, the pressure was a bit alleviated, I should say, and then you start getting into the opportunity of winning potentially millions. So people react differently to large money implications, and psychology played a much bigger role than the actual cards themselves. Uh, I was involved in a hand where a player would 120% of the time call me with bottom set of fives, but because I put the pressure on him for his entire tournament life, he found a fold when I only had two pair. And... (laughs) You know, it was it was it was a really it was a tricky spot. It was a spot where when I made the bet, I thought I had the best hand. <laughs> and then, as you'll see on TV, the, which this hand will definitely 100% make TV. Um, I I knew I was behind once he started talking. He he told me that my two he told me that if I had two pair, it was no good. And then I just had to you know remain calm. I had no other choice. I in my head, I found peace in the fact that. You know, it's a coin flip, essentially. He's either going to fold or he's going to call. And, uh, you know, I had to keep my wits about me. I had to talk to him a little bit. And uh, the only thing that got me through that hand was my gift of gab. 
<laughs> I you tried to win. talk a lot during the hands, um, but that one required a little bit of uh, finesse. You know, that, that brings up a good question as far as what did you learn after this tournament? What did you find out about the, the other players that you were going up against? Did you learn anything about them that you didn't know before? I learned that we all get the same two cards. <laughs> they're not as, a lot of the pros in them, they're not as intimidating as one would think. Uh, there's a number of different reasons. The One of the more compelling ones is that, you know, once you have a name for yourself and you're a TV celebrity, or a poker celebrity, I should say, uh, it turns in to be a lot like NASCAR or golf. Uh, people just want to put their uh, their brands on you. They want to shamelessly plug their products. And, uh, you know, these guys are endorsed. They get their um, they get their buy-ins paid for. You know, like uh, I'm playing with Antonio Esfandiar, and, he, and, you know, he, he wears different caps to, you know, Marquee Nightclub or Tau Nightclub or, you know, 3-Bet Poker. And, you know, I don't know exactly what his arrangements are, but I can almost guarantee even a guy that has 20 million plus in career winnings is still being backed for tournaments. I mean, the variance is very high. You're under the spotlight. It's a great opportunity for endorsement deals and, you know, what's 10K to a clothing company that wants to get their name out on national television, especially on ESPN, and they know he's always going to be at a feature table. Like in my case, when there were 20 tables left, or 40 tables left, mind you, um, that's still 400 players left going into day four. You know, and, and day four is when they started to feature tables. And I'm walking up, and I knew the night before when they did the table assignments that I was at Antonio Esfandiari's table, who, like I said, has 21 million plus in winnings. You can look him up. The other guy, uh, uh, Vivek Rajkumar, he scoops some major events and Kid's a Beast. And uh, I knew those two were going to be at my table, and that was random. But what was not random is the fact that they picked our tables, the feature table, because Antonio Esfandiari's at it. So I'm walking up. I get assigned a table 377 uh, in the Amazon room. I'm walking through. I see 375, 376, no 377, 378, 379. I go up to what should be 377. They had the placard off the ceiling taken down. They put it right on the table there. And they said, if you're assigned to 377, please go to our feature table number three. I was like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? I have to go on the TV right now? This is so ridiculous. Like, I'm short stack at the table. I don't know what kind of hands I'm going to get to see. It's a very small sample size, even playing with these guys for a few hours here or there. I was kind of beside myself. I got goosebumps. I was like, I was slightly nervous. And then once I get up there and I'm under the TVs and the lights and the microphones and the whatever, I was like, pretty comfortable. I'm like, this actually isn't too bad. And then I just got in the rhythm, you know. I just played my game. It was almost as if the cameras weren't there, to be honest. Like, you know, the the game requires so much thought and so much focus and and just putting your mind at ease and, and, and staying patient and being indifferent to the to the levels and the time and the money implications you know, you check all that at the door. You know, you go into it with a slight bit of pessimism, knowing that, hey, I could be out any hand of this thing. Uh, but also, like, the comfort of knowing, well, even if I do bow out, I'm, I've still locked up. At that point, I'd locked up, like, 24000 So I had at least gotten all the money back for myself and the investors, had a small profit to show for it. And to be honest, I, you know, I was just, I was, I was calm. I had no ego about it. I, you know, there was nothing... You know, at no point do you think, do you say to yourself, oh, I'm the best player here, or I'm just going to, you know, crush this guy or whatever. No, you take it as it comes. You don't force the action. You remain still. You stay calm. It's just poker. And, you know, it, it's poker at its highest level and its purest form, and it's enlightening, especially when you're on the brink of hallucination, like I said. I mean, it's just... uh it's surreal. It's it's everything you dream of, and then you're finally there, and you're like, wow, I'm here. And you know what? I can believe it. Most people say that they can't believe something, but, you know, I, I could. I I believed it. I was there. I was – it makes makes me more determined than ever. I'm totally – I realized I'm capable of being on that stage. It's essentially like managing a stock portfolio is really really what it is, you know, and, and I have the, the courage and the confidence and the willpower to get through it, and I had the endurance, and I'd been – working out with my trainers and, you know, reading a lot on Zen and, um, you know, just just really, really calming my mind. And, and it was it was a great experience. I, it gives me the confidence to crush any tournament going forward. 
Jesse Howells, our guest, who finished out of Cleveland, who finished in the top 3% of the World Series of Poker over the last week. Jesse, you know, everybody, when they, they look at these tournaments, probably 99% of the people see it on ESPN or some sort of TV screen, and you mentioned that you were at the feature table. It's a lot different in person than it is on TV, isn't it? Absolutely. There's a, there's a whole lot of folding that you don't see. <laughs> Poker is a very, very boring game leading up to, uh, you know, one or two moments of excitement. Like, uh, in the movie Rounders, I watched that when I got home. I just, I love the movie. I, you know, I've watched it my whole life. In Rounders, uh, Matt Damon, uh, he talks about, uh, uh, you know, winning one big hand an hour. And that's really, that's really kind of what it averages out to, roughly. Like, when you're, pl- when you're, when you're playing a tournament of this prestige and you're playing, like, you know, really good starting hands, I mean, you have, you have some uh you have some raises pre flop, you have some things that get through, you know, you're accumulating chips here and there, but that's the equivalent of a boxer jabbing looking for the big knockout. And you have some solid body blows about once an hour, maybe a big knockout every two to four hours, and uh and that's about the pace of the game. Um that's why skill really prevails is you're not forced into those uh knockout situations any more than maybe once every every couple levels or so, which each level is about two hours. So a lot of jabbing that goes on, and hopefully you can accumulate enough chips through the jabs to be able to, you know, free roll essentially on knocking out one of the players that might only represent a quarter or a third of your stack. And you're just slowly trying to accumulate chips, and and name of the game, though, is survival. So you want to be able to take these shots without risking your tournament life. And I did a pretty good job of of, uh, not not having my tournament life at risk more than three times throughout the tournament. Um, I had pocket kings go up against ace-king. The kings held up. Uh, I had a big flip that I won. Oh, goodness. I was uh, before the money, even before I locked up the 15000 Tiffany's standing there. She's freaking out. My wife, Tiffany, Tiffany uh, Dave's daughter, she's literally shaking. There's a raise. There's a call. Folds around to me on in the small blind. I have a hand I don't want to see a flop with. I want to take the equity right there. I have a, I have enough fold equity to where they can fold their hands if they don't feel like getting committed with an ace-king or, um, heck, I might even get queens to fold because it's really strong and it's for my tournament life and it's right before it's right on the bubble. Well, I jam it in there with pocket jacks. This guy, uh, he, he, he reshoves, which is getting his whole stack in. He had more than me, and he goes all in over the top of me to shove the other guy out and to isolate against me, which gave me some protection. Uh, come to find out, after he goes all in, he had ace-king, and the other guy actually folded jacks. So I go all in with jacks. Ace-king goes all in over top of me, and then the other pocket jacks fold. So my problem is now, if an ace or king hits, I don't even have a miracle out. I can't even hit a jack. Like, two of them are already in the muck. So that being said, um, <laughs> no ace or king came out, and I doubled up, and then... Moved on from there, locked up to 15,000, found myself in a position with kings against ace-king, get it all in, no ace on the, no ace by the river, so I had five cards that came out, not one of them was an ace. My kings hold up, all thumbs up there, onto the, and then I move into the next day. Uh, I, I didn't have my tournament life at risk until I had, uh, ace-queen up against king-queen. Um, I had lost, I had lost about half my stack and a hand prior. I get ace-queen of clubs. A guy who is raising quite often, uh, he opens it up with king-queen of hearts. Comes around to me. I ship it all in. He snap calls me off. We're both all in. I'm just like, no king, no king, no king. Like, just give me an ace and have it be close to over. (laughs) And uh, it just ran out clean with, like, three tens on the board, and my ace-queen held up, and I doubled up there. So I was really only at risk three times, and two of the three I was in a very dominating position. So... Anything can happen in those tournaments. Just the last question: Would you do it again? Oh, absolutely! I'll be out there next year. It's it it's a it's a without a doubt. Um, you know, it's it definitely the the best tournament of the year. I'd say it's uh, the easiest 10K of the of the year because uh, most of these 10Ks, you know, they're only entered into by the pros and whatnot. But the prestige that this carries, the fact that the pros can only buy in one time. Uh, you know, this is why all your home games and stuff, like, have, they satellite guys into it. I don't know if you remember, uh, Tom Sarah Jr. from Girard, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, he finished, uh, pretty deep in the main last year, and, uh, he, he cashed for, I think, a little over 400K. 
he's good friends with a lot of the guys I play with here at Horseshoe Cleveland. And, uh, yeah, they, they have their league. They put somebody in every year. He happened to go really deep last year. The the league got, you know, a big portion of the proceeds. He got to keep a big portion of the proceeds. You know, it was a win-win for all the hometown guys, for him. Uh, and, you know, that's another guy who played his heart out. You know, he uh, he was an unknown. You know, he was, admit, he was admittedly an amateur. I consider myself a serious amateur. He's considered an amateur. And, you know, he crushed it. So, you know, it, it just it goes to show, like, uh, you know, the, the type of field that you get are those that don't otherwise play 10Ks on a regular basis. So I'm not saying that I play 10Ks on a regular basis, but I play at a level that, you know, not in an egotistical way, but, you know, I, I, I belong at that level. You know, I, 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 I genuinely feel that way. And you were asking earlier about uh, what's the difference between, like, actually being there live and seeing it on TV and, like I said, a lot of folding and of the 12 hours I was under the lights and the cameras and, and, and the mics, um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe two, three hands, maybe 20 hands. Uh, it's, it's hard to say, but, uh, but at least it'll give it a little bit of peek into my game and, and at least what I'm capable of. Jesse, congratulations. Thanks for joining us here tonight. Well, thanks, Dave. I appreciate the, uh, you know, uh, the interview and everything and, you know, love your show and, be happy to do it again uh, on the next deep run. <laughs> Part of Jesse's matches will be shown sometime next month on ESPN, and we'll let you know when that will be. For now, the final nine players will take their money and prepare until the final table reconvenes on November 8th and plays down to a winner on November 10th, and that final will be broadcast live on ESPN. Once again, our thanks to Jesse House for being our guest tonight talking about the World Series of Poker here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Changes to the NBA playoffs are almost certainly coming. Changes to the league's must-discuss moratorium? Well, they're not. After meeting with the league's Board of Governors on those and other topics on Tuesday, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said the league is leaning towards eliminating any protection for division winners and playoff seeding going forward, and instead placing the eight teams on the Eastern and Western Conference brackets based solely on their record. Now, that was an easy fix. The moratorium issue, on the other hand, is the one that's stumping everyone. The League C has that window starting July 1st where the deals can be agreed to but not finalized while the salary numbers and other financial matters for the coming year are being crunched. It got tons of attention this year when DeAndre Jordan committed to the Dallas Mavericks, then changed his mind, went into hiding, and stayed with the Los Angeles Clippers. Jordan broke no rules. His commitment was non-binding, but it still raised an ugly issue. What if someone doesn't keep their word? Silver said no one had a good solution. But some of the ideas being bandied about in recent days include having a memo of understanding that could be executed to essentially lock in the commitment while the budgets for the new league year are still being worked out, or simply shortening the moratorium. Finally, Silver said the league is looking into not only widening the path next year to the basket supports where players can decelerate in hopes of not crashing into photographers and fans like LeBron James did in the finals, but then they would also add a second one of those on each side of the basket for next year. And while nobody seems to like Hack-A-Shack, well, that's staying too, because the ratings for NBA games aren't decreasing, and it might show younger players that they're just going to have to learn to make their free throws. Gee, wouldn't that be fascinating if somebody actually could make some free throws? You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. The British Open began today over in Europe, and the first round started early this morning without defending champion Rory McIlroy, who's out with that ankle injury. As far as the leaderboard is concerned, as the first round came to an end a couple of hours ago, Dustin Johnson is on top at minus seven. Then there is a five-way, uh, check that, a six-way tie for second place, all at 600. Retief Goosen, Paul Lowry, Zach Johnson, Jason Day, Danny Willett, and Robert Streb. In case you're wondering, Tiger Woods shot a 76 today at the British Open. 
Des Bryant and the Dallas Cowboys have hammered out a long-term contract. And boy, was this a long time coming. Bryant agreed on Wednesday to a five-year, $70 million deal with $45 million of it guaranteed. The new pack puts to bed a summer-long drama that saw negotiations flatline between Dallas and Bryant, who threatened to skip training camp and regular season games without a new long-term contract. The Bleacher Report's Matt Miller reacts to the signing. A long-term deal for Des Bryant with the big money that he wanted, the big money that he is worth. Now here's the question. Did the Cowboys overpay? Did Jerry Jones and Steven Jones get down to this franchise tag deadline and start to panic a little bit? When you look at the overall numbers of this Des Bryant contract, it's a good contract for both sides, I think. You have the protection of the guarantee the way it's broke down. Uh, but also for Des Bryant, you get that top-end wide receiver money. This is the second biggest receiver contract ever, only behind Calvin Johnson, who was the number two overall pick in the draft. So it's a different contract structure. This is a good deal for Des. It gives him that money up front. He gets $20 million to sign, the $45 million guaranteed. So he has now that long-term protection. The Cowboys get a receiver who's 26 years old. He's gone over 1,000 yards receiving the last three years. And last year had 88 catches and 16 touchdowns. So you're getting a blue-chip player. And as Tony Romo ages, as the run game is kind of a revolving door, now you have someone you can build this offense around. Des Bryant, well worth the money, in my opinion. Bryant's $14 million average per season exceeds the $12.82 million that he would have made in 2015 by signing his franchise tag. The Denver Broncos and star-wide receiver Demarius Thomas agreed yesterday to a long-term contract that will keep him in the Mile High City for the next few years. Thomas agreed to a five-year, $70 million deal with $43.5 million of it guaranteed. The NFL Players Union felt Denver and Dallas were conspiring by having dialogue about how to approach the respective contracts of Thomas and Des Bryant. The NFLPA threatened to file collusion charges against the two teams, but now both players are signed and no lawsuit will take place. The Tennessee Titans have yet to sign number two overall pick Marcus Mariota to a contract. Well, and why not? Well, they'd like to have offset language in his contract. Mariota would not. Interim President and CEO Steve Underwood said the team has always had offset language in players' contracts, and it's nothing new. So you probably are asking, what exactly is the offset language? Well, it allows a team to save money when they release a player. And how do they do that? Well, let's say a first-rounder is due $2 million in his fourth year. If he's released and then agrees to a $2 million deal with a new team, the original team is completely off the hook. If he signs a deal for a million and a half, the original team is on the hook for only 500000 If he signs for less, he receives the difference, and if there, there is no offset language, the discarded player receives the guaranteed money from his original team and the full salary from his new team. So now you know why Tennessee is trying so hard to get that taken care of. Well, we're still waiting on a decision as far as Tom Brady is concerned in Deflategate, and from the start, many felt the NFL would reduce Brady's four-game suspension. The NFL often operates that way. They overpunish and then reduce, even though that approach makes no sense and it makes the league and Roger Goodell look indecisive. A report on Wednesday said that he will not, or at least the union won't accept, a lesser suspension as a result of his Deflategate appeal. NFLPA sources are tweeting that if Brady's appeal results in him being suspended for any games, the union will fight it in federal court. Brady received the same amount of games as Greg Hardy's suspension, and that was reduced to four games for violating the NFL's personal conduct policy for allegedly assaulting a woman. The NFL crew examines this case of Tom Brady. Well, well, it could. I mean, the two different cases, you know, one is personal conduct and one is integrity. Yeah. Tom Brady's being integrity. You know, a lot of times laws don't necessarily measure and punishment measure the crimes, so to speak. But you're not the only one who's feeling that. How can the NFL sit a guy with domestic violence issues for four games and then sit a guy for uh, allegedly asking people to deflate footballs for four games? How does that measure up? The optics don't look good. So I don't know if this necessarily is going to say Roger, to tell Roger Goodell, hey, I've got to reduce it. For two games, because the optics don't look good, he's going to go by the information that he's gathered. 
Um, but Solomon, I mean, this does present, as we've seen all over the place now, some of the backlash, people saying, how can you have equal, equal, equal punishment for these two situations? If I'm Roger, I'm saying your, your lens is a little bit off, okay? The optics should say that he already has set out 15 games, and now he's going to set out four more games, okay? So four plus the 15, that's 19 games. What, we want him to sit out for 25 games because 15 and 10 more? I mean, let's face it. That, so I think that's the pers- perspective we should have. He's already set out most of all of last year, only played in one game. Set out for 15. And now, as Harold Henderson said, 10 more games would be overly punitive. He already, I think, said that the act itself was egregious. Four more games would suffice. And I, I tend to agree. Yeah, but some people are going to say, just look, Greg Hardy got paid for those 15 games that he set out yes, he did. last year. Made a lot of money off of that, probably more than $12 million. But Tom Brady, you know, the guy who's the face you know, of the NFL, having to sit out four games for this, some people are going to say this is automatically Roger Goodell's got to reduce it. I don't necessarily think so because I think, again, it's so is it about the games miss or the paychecks miss? Because, I, I mean, that, that's a whole nother right. thing, as we well know, because not all players make the same amount. So should we start finding players based on dollar amount or games? I think this has always been about games, never about the dollar amount missed as a result of not uh, playing in those games. And, and just quickly, there's so many things going on here, but Sally, I think you and I both agree when it comes to Tom Brady, it should never even have gotten never have gotten Never have gotten this messy. Well, whether a lawsuit is an empty threat for NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell to think about as he decides on the appeal, that's simply unknown. Brady has never admitted to do anything wrong in Deflategate, and even though investigator Ted Wells was paid millions of dollars and was given a few months to find something, he never found anything remotely specific to pin on Brady either. So if this latest report is accurate, Brady could be ready to fight any suspension that Goodell gives him. Bills president Russ Brandon says offensive line coach Aaron Cromer has been put on paid administrative leave after being accused of punching a boy in the face for using his beach chairs. The Bills are following the league's personal conduct policy, putting Cromer on leave while investigating. The Walton County Sheriff's Office says Cromer was arrested over the weekend after confronting two boys, pushing one to the ground and punching him. An arrest report released this week said the boy told deputies that Cromer threatened to kill his family if he reported the incident. And finally in the NFL, Houston Texans player J.J. Watt experienced a dream come true last week, one that there are probably millions of other men that would love to have this happen. He met his celebrity crush, Jennifer Aniston. Earlier this year, the 26-year-old didn't hesitate singing Aniston's praises when E! News asked him which star he was crushing on. At the time, the two hadn't met, but on Monday, Watt uploaded a photo of them side-by-side. And you got to see this pic. She just comes right up to his pectoral muscles. He's so tall. So how did this happen? Well, they seem to be represented by the same talent agency. He was there speaking to the agency's employees and was asked if there was anything they could do for him and Watt doesn't he- didn't hesitate. He just brought up his self-described lifelong goal of meeting Aniston, and coincidentally, she happened to be in the building that day, so they just simply brought them both together. Nick Saban wants to make changes with how underclassmen are rated by the NFL Draft Advisory Board. Saban would like them to give out its draft grades to interested underclassmen after the players are done with their college seasons, which actually, I've got to admit with Saban, it makes perfect sense because the season is continually going longer and longer every year. So if your season isn't over, why should you be graded? That doesn't happen when you're in school with your book learning, yet Saban actually when he started talking about this, made a mistake. He seemed to tie his stance on the issue to Alabama's loss to Ohio State in last season's Sugar Bowl. Saban said the Tide's chemistry from the SEC championship game to the playoff game was affected by something, and he couldn't put his finger on it. I I like Saban. I've liked Saban ever since he was the defensive coordinator of the Browns before they moved under Bill Belichick. But you have to ask, Saban this question. Could it be that that chemistry was thrown off by the time off between games? Or maybe even by Ohio State? 
Barrett Selly and Chris Walsh of the Bleacher Report talk about Saban's comments. Nick Saban talking about the draft process and the fact that he did not like the fact that draft grades needed to be in by December 15th and perhaps wanted to move the early entrant deadline back a little bit because of the, the lateness of the national championship game. He's going to be labeled a whiner. Chris, is that fair? It doesn't matter if it's fair or not. It's going to happen either way. <laughs> I mean, every single year we kind of see this thing. Yeah, that's right. When Saban talks, people really listen, and his voice carries more than anyone else. So he just came out today, said something that makes absolutely total sense, and he's going to get ripped for it. I mean, that's basically the way it works. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. And, and you mentioned his players against Ohio State maybe going out of bounds, not wanting to uh, get hurt, protect that draft status. Is he making excuses for the Ohio State loss? You know, it's kind of funny because we start hearing things like, you know, we didn't respect the quarterback, uh, you know, the whole draft process. I think Alabama's kind of scratching their heads a little bit because of the way the last two seasons ended. Um, you know, two years ago, the, the, the incredible play against Auburn and then against Ohio State. This is not typical, you know, Alabama. And we aren't hearing this year the usual um, Alabama, you know, everything is Alabama in the West. This year we're hearing, hey, it's really wide open. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a different feel here. Yeah, there is. And plus, Ohio State really didn't have a whole lot of draft prospects. They're all coming back and back in Columbus. But I think it's interesting. Nick Saban always comes to this event, the biggest stage of the offseason, with one or two key points he wanted to hit on. And whether you want to label Nick Saban a whiner or think he was speaking exactly the way he meant it, that he wants to have some sort of change and ignite a discussion, it is something that I think needs to be looked at because, let's be honest, it is a condensed timeline now with the lateness of the bowl games. And uh, whether you think it's a whiner or not, I think it is still something that needs to be addressed. I definitely don't think that Nick Saban is a whiner. Alabama, which lost by seven to Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl after leading by 14 early in the second half, had three underclassmen drafted in this year's NFL draft. And they were wide receiver Amari Cooper, safety Landon Collins, and running back T.J. Yeldon. Don't think that Nick Saban's a whiner. He was making a point. He just made it mistakenly. Now, maybe he was trying to get a point across that, you know, there may be some shortened time that has to be happened between conference championship games and the playoff game. Nonetheless, he does make a good point as far as these draft grades should not come out until the end of the season. And finally, in college football tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, Michigan Interim Athletic Director Jim Hackett didn't hesitate when he was asked whether Michigan's Nike contract was the largest in the nation. It is. According to a term sheet dated July 6th, Michigan will receive $169 million over the 15-year agreement, with $12 million of it in upfront money, $76.8 million in additional cash over the course of the deal, and $80.2 million in apparel for the school's 31 teams. That's an average of $11.3 million a year. And... Michigan has the ability to opt out of this contract after 11 years. The deal will start next August, and it would be worth a total of $122.3 million if Michigan declines the option years from 2027 through 2031. Now, the numbers seem to dwarf the previously reported biggest deal, which was at Notre Dame, their 10-year $90 million contract with Under Armour. But according to a story from ESPN.com business writer Darren Ravel, a person with knowledge of Notre Dame's contract said it's still bigger than U of M's on an annual basis. Now, keep in mind, Notre Dame is a private institution, and its apparel deal has not been made public. And that's going to put a wrap on tonight's show. Thanks for joining me here this evening. Our thanks to Jesse Howells, who finished 198th in the World Series of Poker out in Las Vegas, for being our guest here this evening, and also our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing the show, but most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening here this evening. Don't forget to join us on Monday night with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That'll be at 9 o'clock here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. And we'll be back again next Thursday night with another edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody. Have a good weekend. Until next Monday night and then again on Thursday night. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.